Hey everyone and welcome back to another book podcast. This week I had the absolute pleasure of talking to Rebecca Stott, award-winning non-fiction writer and novelist, to talk all about her latest novel, Dark Earth. I got to talk to Rebecca all about her characters, her writing process, her experience in the publishing industry, some seriously delicious biscuits and so much more. Enjoy the episode! As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. Thank you so much for coming on today and welcome to Another Book Podcast. It's absolutely lovely to have you on virtually. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, I'd absolutely love to just jump right in and start talking about your book, Dark Earth, which I was like, oh, it would be really hard to do such a beautiful paperback when the hardback's so lovely looking. Nope, you did it. It looks absolutely stunning. I love it so much. It's such a nice addition to any paperback collection. Very, very talented uh, uh jacket designer really I mean her work is just beautiful so yeah thank you. and one one of the things I wanted to ask was um the two uh, characters on the cover did they do you feel like she really encapsulated uh, Isla and Blue the two main characters in the cover is this how you envisioned them yeah, I mean, it's very it's very stylized, but what she's given them is a sense of, I mean, you, they're obviously Anglo-Saxon women, they're obviously from early Britain, but at the same time, the defiance, the, the, the their stature, the way that they're standing, the sword, uh, and the, one of them is, is uh, very inspired by nature and the other one is a sword maker. So, you know, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful design. Yes, it's it's absolutely stunning, and and I couldn't help but imagine them sort of being like these women on the cover, very like stoic and strong uh, for their for their period. And I mean, I guess we should ask, like, what inspired you to to write a novel like this so far in the past? Yeah, I've never. I mean, I've I've written historical fiction before, and I've written a lot of history, so I'm fascinated by history. But I, the furthest I've gone back before is the 17th century. So this was a really big leap for me and one that made me really hesitate. Could I do it? Was it a bridge too far? Lots of archaeologists, even archaeologists, were saying to me, why go there? Because I was interested. Oh, just a step back. It started really with a trip across, a trip down through Jordan, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. And one of the extraordinary things about Jordan is that there are Roman ruins, Roman cities, Roman amphitheatres, poking up through uh, desert and open land everywhere. So you can walk down Roman pavements with, with colonnades on either side. I mean, of course, you can do that in Britain as well. But there, there, there the ruin sites are not... Um, you know, tended, manicured, they're really quite wild. So that set my imagination going, like what would it have been like to have lived in the hinterland of a Roman Roman ruin city a hundred years after the Romans had left? And then when I got back to Britain with those images in my head of mosaics and bits of stone and broken heads and so on, so poetic and so beautiful. When I got back, I went to Museum of London and discovered 
that the Romans had more or less left Britain all at once in 420 AD, having had and built a magnificent city, stone city on the banks of the Thames. You know, we know what that city looks like. It's got an amphitheater, it had a forum, it had beautiful roads and warehouses and villas. And uh, when they gave up on Britain and moved their soldiers and all of their administrators back to Rome in 420, um, really, I guess, sort of feeling like they couldn't manage this outpost of the empire anymore. It was constantly under attack. It was expensive and there was trouble back at Rome. Um, So they withdrew all of their imperial administrators and so on. That city, Stone City, grand and magnificent, lay pretty much empty for the best part of 400 years. Now, that blew my mind. Uh, I went to the Museum of London, and it's such a beautiful museum. And you go into the Roman rooms, and it's full of stuff. Uh, You know, nails and pots and artefacts and gods and stone and so on. And then, so that represents the London, sorry, the Roman years of Londinium. And then you go into the the period between the Romans and the medieval period, and the Museum of London represents that 400 years of emptiness, of dereliction, of an empty ghost city by a single white corridor. Um, wow. Because we don't know what happens in there. We don't know what was happening in the city. And what an archaeologist told me is that the number of artefacts that were dropped in the city during those 400 years things that you could definitely date to an Anglo-Saxon person going in there or somebody from the hinterland of Britain going into the city. A number of things that were dropped during that period and can be safely dated, you can fit in a single shoebox. You know. <laughs> That's insane. It's insane, right? So, so, but for me, that was like, okay, I really have to try to at least imagine myself into the city a hundred years after the Romans had left. What would that city look like? What would it smell like? What what would it be like to walk from south of the city, southern wall to the northern wall? Uh, What would it be like to sit in the remains of the amphitheatre? And I went to see an archaeologist who was a, a curator at the Museum of London, And he got out. I mean, it was a wonderful moment for me because I asked him that question. I suddenly realized he'd been thinking about this too. He opened his laptop and he showed me pictures of Pripyat, which is the city very close to Chernobyl. So after the Chernobyl disaster and all the radiation and so on, they closed off the whole of Pripyat, big concrete city. They had to close it off because it was really dangerous. And that city has now been empty for, what, 35 years, 30, 35 years. And it's completely overgrown. So pictures from people, from drones and so on. You know, there's old school rooms with the roofs in and there's cats in, you know, kittens um, and cats inside filing cabinets and owls. And, you know, the, the whole place has exploded with wildlife, but it's also wild. So... That's where I started for me. Um, and of course, people said to me, that's mad. You know, this is the darkest corner of the darkest period of British history. Why go there when you could go and write a novel set in a period where there's lots of documentation? We've got no written records. There's only bits of archaeological record. 
So that was the challenge, really. And it wasn't the challenge. It wasn't just that, oh, my goodness, this is really hard. I must do it. It was simply that those incredible ruins had ignited something in me um, about about change. I mean, we're living in a time when I think a lot of us are thinking about what a future world might look like because we're Mm -hmm. having to change so much because of climate change. We're having to rethink the way that we live. And here was a moment in history where the Romans had been in Britain for 400 years. They had dominated everything, the way everything worked. And then suddenly they were gone. And so the people who remained in the country and the new migrants who were coming in were having to figure out how to do things again, you know, without the pots coming in, without the olive oil coming in. And so, of course, there's a there's a bit of a Brexit um, mm-hmm. echo there too. So, uh, yeah, I the reason I wrote it was because I wanted to understand it. I think often that's what writers do, particularly if you work with history is, you can read all the history books, but there's something about going in there imaginatively, getting your imagined characters' feet on the ground that enables you to come at it from a very human point of view rather than from a you know, a, a history book with lots of footnotes kind of point of view. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, you know, all of the books set in sort of like 18th century, 19th century, they're all kind of, you, you can have, you know, a lot of freedom but you're at the same time you have to make sure that you stick to the facts with historical fiction you need to make sure that your character can can do whatever they want within the realms of what was happening at the time what we know was happening at that time whereas you know 500 AD you have so much more room to imagine and kind of allow your characters to explore an area that we ourselves don't know as much about which gives them more freedom as characters to to explore and i particularly loved um a section where one of the characters is walking um the wall that she hasn't walked before and just sort of seeing her surroundings that she's grown up in her whole life from a different view and and she's really struggling to comprehend that this is where she has been living and that she can see you know where a family member used to live where she used to live and a town that she knew but seeing it from this direction is is so almost unfathomable to her because she's only known it from the direction that she's lived in and it's just you know given the fact that we have so much freedom and and we have Apple Maps, Google Maps, planes, we travel, you know, we we live somewhere and we work somewhere else. Like we move so much constantly daily without even realizing how much it is until you look at characters like this and think they live in one spot kind of for most of their life. And when they move, it's they're discovering a whole new world, even if they're just, you know, going down the Thames a bit. It's like a completely new realm for them. And it is it's so crazy to think that they would actually have experienced that doing such a, a small journey like that would mean so much to someone. Yeah, and there's so much that we can't understand unless, you know, as you say, no maps. Um I was working with with maps all the time. I have, you know, incredible series of maps of what Roman London looked like and what's on top of, you know, the amphitheatre now. And so I I needed it in order to be able to work out how long would it take to walk from A to B, how long would it, you know, how wide would the river have been at this point. But of course, my characters, as you say, didn't have those maps. So 
you know, although I understood the city from above, I needed to understand it from below as well, from on the ground, um, and see it through their eyes. And of course, their eyes are not my eyes. You know, they they had gods, they had superstitions, they had mm-hmm. beliefs and ways of seeing the world that I had to find my way into. So, I mean, it's a great, it was a fantastic adventure, but a very difficult one. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I'm I'm sure I can't even imagine how how you would even begin to navigate that sort of thing. And and even uh, as well, one of the characters talking about um how to get to um how to get to Italy. And they're talking about how long it would take to walk essentially across France. And it's like I never would have thought of, you know, and they talk about it would take like a month to walk across France and that would be walking day and night. And I was thinking, I've never thought about how big France is and and how long it would take to walk across France. Like that's not something that has ever crossed my mind to think about. So when someone actually puts it like that. And and today you think, oh, it's about a two and a half hour flight. Like it's it's just it's so far removed from from our day to day norm that it's it's that I think that makes it so much more interesting to read to think the kind of obstacles they had then is makes their lives so much more interesting because yeah. ours is so much easier. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just that they didn't have cars or planes; it's that they didn't have roads either in a lot, a lot of places. You know, the Romans would have put a lot of very good roads across Europe. Um, but, you know, it's a, a lot of times it would have been easier to travel by water because, you know, the, it's just da- dangerous to be on the moon. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's amazing to even think that they were like that far back in history that they were even like thought of making a boat. It just makes you think, wow, people in those times must have been so clever to survive. Like thinking of just all these ways that and reading about all these ways that they get by. Um, and you know, obviously, and it's a time of swords and and you know daggers rather than you know guns. So it's like, you know, the, it, the fact that they just make all these things with their hands and then use them and survive off of them is a, like just so incredible to to imagine. Yeah. And um, one of my favorite um, things that is mentioned is Jenny Greenteeth who I hadn't heard of before and um, I've now like looked her up a little bit and, and tried to read into her a bit more but how did you come across her and choose to sort of include her as a figure in this novel? Um, one of the things that struck me really early on I mean p- partly because I'm, I'm very interested in belief systems and the way in which people see the world and the way in which in the past Magic and religion would be inseparable, what we call magic and what we call religion. So the ways in which people would make deals with their gods, they would make sacrifices. So the the Thames itself is full of um, broken bracelets, broken things that people have thrown in. They've broken something precious. Um, And the breaking is important. It's almost like I'm sacrificing you, my most precious object. I'm throwing you into the river. And that might have been to appease the river gods. It might have been to appease other gods. So um, what, So I started to do some work around, like, what would my two sisters, my lovely Anglo-Saxon sisters, how would they have seen the world? What, what would their gods have been? What kind of, What kind of prayers and sacrifices might they make when they were frightened? And what would keep them awake at night? What were their monsters, you know? 
Um, and so I started looking for, uh, we, we basically we don't really know about Anglo-Saxon religion. We know some of their gods, but we don't know in detail. Um, but it, as I started looking at sort of deep ancient British folklore, Jenny Greenteeth kept coming up. And, but she is one of many uh, witch figures that are associated with what you might call liminal areas. So the edges of water or marshland. Um, and there are many other versions of her. So when I started looking, I discovered that she has different names. So, you know, I, I chose Jenny Greenteeth. Jenny Greenteeth becomes the name of one of the swords that Isla makes. Um, but there's also in the very famous epic poem Beowulf, there's a terrifying monster called Grendel's mother, and she comes up out of the marsh. And they're all female figures, you know, some that it's almost as if they're underneath, and if you push them, they'll come up and they'll steal your children. And they're like witches associated not always with water, but always with marsh, these marshy figures. So uh, it, it, it tapped into lots of interesting things for me about witchcraft, because that's a big part. I mean, in a way, this is pre-witchcraft, but there's always been that demonization of women who don't stick to the rules, right, or have some access to magic. So there are other versions of witchcraft around in this period, what we might call witchcraft. So, and there's also a group of women called the Strix, and they're also monstrous women who are supposed to fly at night and steal babies. So it seemed to me that if my women were on the run as they are, and they come across a group of exiled women as they do, um, that those women would have been called Jenny Greenteeth, they would have been called monsters, they would have been... Um, made it into monstrous others by people who were frightened of them. But the other thing that really struck me is that sometimes there are the same gods, they just have different names. So Jenny Greenteeth, the woman of the marsh, the witch in the marsh, has different names in Lancashire and Staffordshire and Sussex. And um, if you go to Romania, there's another version of her. And if you go to Japan, there's another version of her. So these kind of deep archetypes of the woman in the marsh, the woman in the mud, they, you know, some people think that it might also be associated with ancient sacrifices. So we know, for instance, from the bog bodies that come up out of certain uh, bogs and marshes that women and men, but more often women, were sacrificed by drowning in marshes. So over time, you could imagine that they might carry a sort of haunting. People might go, oh, you know, they might, there might be an ancient memory that that was the place where women used to be sacrificed and they might come back at any moment. Mm. Um, so I loved that as an idea of kind of deep revenge, that patriarchy, if we can use that, you know, my, my men, the men in my novel, the overlords that chase the sisters are like an early version of, British patriarchy, mm. um, they've got lots of power, they abuse it, they try to control everybody. And I love the fact that, they, that those people are haunted by a kind of demonic female presence that's in nature. That mm. was something I wanted to play with. 
And uh, I was talking with someone the other day, actually, about the fact that, like, it, it's actually nice to see women being like the main central characters that you love and you have like an affinity with, but also showing them as the more demonic villainous characters as well, because women can be everything, even even the scary monster under the bed, you know. Um, and also I I when I looked her up, I I saw that, you know, they said that she preys on children and the elderly. And and I thought that was funny that, you know, even in sort of this mythical form men have somehow made it so that they only prey on the innocent and vulnerable. They they can never, you know, Jenny Greenteeth will never take uh, a strong man, at, you know, at the edge of, you know, the marshland. It's like he, he, she will only take children and the elderly. And I was like, uh, that's so typical yes. <laughs> that they would portray her in that way. And I bet that didn't stop them being terrified of her as a myth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh but she was she was great and I then loved the fact that uh her kind of memory was then used as to name this sword this sort of thing of of power and fear constructed by the hands of someone who should not have been uh in in the forge at all it was sort of kind of all tying together in this great feminist uh, plot line and I thought that was fantastic but I won't say any more about it so it's not not to ruin anything <laughs> um but yeah so Jenny Greenteeth was uh fantastic but also um something I also hadn't read before was about the Sun Kings so I was wondering how you um researched them or yeah. found out about them well they're obviously the Romans um but it in the early stages of the novel when I was tackling some of the most difficult things, uh, it occurred to me that we call them the Romans, but would the native Britons and would the Anglo-Saxons that followed the Romans call them the Romans? Mm. See what I mean? So the Romans were clearly an incredibly powerful presence across Europe and across parts of the you know Middle East and down into, you know, I mean, the empire was so wide um, and they were an unbelievable force. You know, their their soldiery, their military, their administrative structure, their engineering, all of those things. So people would have known the Romans, even if you weren't in a country that was was occupied by Romans, you would know them and you would know what they looked like and you would know their cities and you would know their bridges and their roads and so on. But after they left Britain, it occurred to me that I mean, for sure, they would never have been called the Romans mm, yeah. <laughs> to the Anglo-Saxon people. They would have been called something else. So I I, I came up with some kings because it occurred to me that, you know, the people in Britain would know them as people who came from a land of the sun, you know, would mm. have, I guess many of the Romans coming to Britain would have complained about the rain and the lack of the sun and they would have been, you know, Looking the for mis- their wine. miserable, <laughs> the miserable, miserable weather in Britain. Um, so, some kings seem to be about right to me in terms of what you know, and mythical as well that the people in Britain might have been who remained in Britain and the newcomers coming in from across the sea, what might have called the Romans the Sun Kings. And I thought, well, I just hope that works for people, that people understand that I'm really talking about the Romans um, and the remains of the Roman city, uh, but trying to find a way that's more um, 
It's more like the way Isla and Blue would have imagined the Romans rather than our way of imagining the Romans. Yeah. And is and calling them kings as well, I think, has a, you know, especially because th- then the person that is the, like, that then becomes the lord that they then live by when the Romans leave, that makes sense in terms of the fact that they are, like, even talking about them, they are known as the kings. And, yeah. you know, they have this, that is a sense of hierarchy. They have this sort of, like you say, this massive empire. And so they are still the kings. And so when there is this vacuum after they leave, the person that fills it can't even call himself a king. He is a lord. And so there's even, that's, you know, that's a kind of step down that knowing that they're still not the level of the Romans because he is a lord, not a king, uh, was really interesting. And and L- Lord Osric himself is a fas- fascinating character, I thought, uh, sort of torn between Christianity and the, I mean, I, I know it as the sort of Norse mythology is uh, with Freya and Thanor. Uh, is that is that right? Is that? Yeah, there are lots of Olaf's, where it's not Norse, it would have been uh, uh, what we call Anglo-Saxon now. Some people call it Germanic. There are all sorts of debates about what words we can use to describe this, but basically northern europe the gods of northern europe and they would have um they would have come with the migrants who are coming over from the people we call anglo-saxon um so osric comes with those ancient gods but is also uh taken up with christianity as well and i think that would have been true for a lot of people at this stage because christianity is beginning to sweep across europe so mm. um you know you would have seen people with tussling with really different belief system like where do I go when I die it's a different answer whether you're Christian or whether you're Anglo-Saxon you know are you betraying which gods are you betraying if you pray to one rather than the other so yeah Osric is very fun one of the things I found very interesting in terms of um power is that swords are a way so there's a there's an amazing archaeologist uh, and historian called Robin Fleming she's a historian but she works with archaeological materials and she says one of the things she argues she's not the only one but is that for a long time there are very few swords in the archaeological record after the after the Romans go and the best guess we have is that people are living very hand to mouth for for several generations there's no pot making, you know, there's no, there's no imports coming in. And so people are living, they're getting through the winter as best they can. They don't have any spare money to make fancy swords or make fancy clothes or build fancy buildings. It's all very, um, yeah, hand to mouth. But then you begin to see the rise of these fancy swords, swords that would have cost so much money <laughs> to make and to commission. And you need very skilled swordsmiths to make them so it would be like the equivalent of having a Maserati or having a you know a Tesla no actually something much much higher than that. <laughs> you know something uh, a mark of status uh, of, of of great uh, impact so what we see after the Romans go is is several decades of people living without overlords without surplus without anybody having any spare money and then gradually you start to see the rise of the overlords and we begin to see the beginning of what uh will be called feudalism you know where there are 
barons and lords and people who basically tax everyone to death and enslave people. I mean, some of them would have been good, of course, and some of them would have been kind, but many of them, you know, had to protect their land and they had to have soldiers. And they. so we see the beginning of this. And that's what I wanted to portray at this period is that Isla in Blue and her communities have been living in a very simple way for several decades. And now we're beginning to see land grabs and fights between lords who want, I want that hillside, I want that land between that river and that river. And so ordinary people are getting caught up in battles for power and battles for ownership and battles for domination. Um, So that's really my story in Dark Earth is that those two sisters and so many others are being caught up uh, sort of collateral damage in the in these big mm. fights, and they have to use everything they can. You know, they might not have sword power, but they have to use everything they can to survive and outwit the men with swords who are coming to try to control them. Yeah, and I think that's what I love so much about like Isla and Blue. They set each other off well. Like they're they're a good balance in the sense that Blue is so sure of herself and like so confident in her beliefs. And like she's, it surprised me that she, she gives off the older sibling kind of energy rather than younger sibling energy because she is so sure of what is right and her moral compass is so steadfast that she is just knows what to do all the time in in a sense she believes like okay we need to do this because it will please this god and then we need to go and do this because this is what is best for us and i related so much more to isla who was just <laughs> confused and had so many questions after questions after questions and every question she's asking herself i was like i want to know that too this is you know blue is going off of almost no information just so kind of sure within herself that this is right and Isla's like hang on we need to understand like all of our roots here what what's best for us what's going to work how are we going to survive are these people trustworthy and Blue's like absolutely and she's like but you've just met them we don't (laughs) we don't know this you know there's just it they're so different but they do yeah they do balance each other out well and and all of Isla's kind of curiosity and cautiousness is so understandable because she is thrown into this world from this sort of innocent background of like that the island where they live just seems like their childhood in a nutshell you know that they've kind of just always lived near like woodland and you know they're foraging and they're building and they're you know really surviving and keeping to themselves and they're very close family so when they get thrown into you know disarray and don't know what to do and then even worse they're kind of put into this hall with all of these men who were suddenly trying to just take over everything and and make you know alliances and sort of you can see the start of almost what you have today you can see the start of a sort of government style uh or king to government style uh setup forming and it you know, it's just complete confusion because it's not the life that they're used to. And that was just, it was so nice that she was so cautious and, and asking so many questions because I feel like if a lot of the 
viewpoint had been from blue it would have been just yes i i know what we're doing and i'm so sure and and that would have been more confusing because blue does seem to have this uh otherworldly feel to her character where you know she has these assurances because she has this connection with the gods and the earth and you know more so than your average person perhaps like isla who i you know i still think that she's she has so much more there but she's just scared to tap into it and so has to keep to herself and and by the end of the novel she is changed I mean all the experiences have changed Mm. her I think the two sisters become more like each other as time goes on and learn from each other you know I I I um I'm lucky enough to be the mother of two young women two who are very like Isla and Blue and I have seen them, oh, they're not. I mean, obviously, you never, you, <laughs> never write, you never write characters who are absolutely the people who you've, you know, are, are really close to you. But what's always amazed me is that those, my 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 daughters are very, very close, joined at the hip, really, um, t- t- two years apart. But, yeah, very, very different. But they've shifted, the dynamics between them have shifted and changed over the years. And it's hard to tell who's in the lead, (laughs) (laughs) who's the one who makes decisions because they're always, yeah. But they, it was a great, it was a great gift for me to watch that sisterhood. Um, I mean, I haven't had that experience in my own life, but I have seen those two young women work in, magical ways you know mysterious ways and and I think that's the other thing as a writer you you have to start out with an understanding that every character that you that you write is going to be contradictory you know that there's going to be as you said so eloquently yourself you know that Isla is both furious and really cautious you know she's Mm really wants to know things but she's never reckless whereas Blue will be reckless Um, yes and Isla will be the one just holding on to her sister's, you know, tunic, uh, <laughs> trying to stop her. Um, so, so the two of them, you know, and and writers say this so often, but it, it is one of the mysteries of writing is that you create your characters, and once they're up and running, up and walking, they surprise you. You know, you you, you think you they're going to do X, and they do Y, and. Mm. If you let them, then your story continues to surprise you. And I think there needs to be a, a balance between, oh, I'm writing this book, but actually my characters are showing me a slightly different version of it. Um, and that's always a delight. You, know, you come to the table every day with a scene. I'm going to write this scene. And then, oh, okay, so she does it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this kind of natural formation of a character. Yeah. Yeah, you think you've got it down on paper, and you do, but but that's just the start. And then once they have their own life, they're really organic. Um, Yeah, delightful. And and there's a huge, I don't think writers write about this very often, but the huge grievance process after you've finished, because, you know, I spent four years writing, well, probably three years writing, two years researching, darker, 
And that means that these people are in your head all the time, all of your characters. Mm -hmm. You go for a walk and you don't intend for them to come along with you, but they're in your head. And there's another scene emerging and and then suddenly it's finished and the book's out. And, um, and But they still seem, stay, stay very real to you, very rich and intimate. Do you still imagine, you know, what Isla and Blue would be doing post Dark Earth? I do. I have even played with the idea of writing a sequel when I had them leave the city that in my head was like, I can't let them go. I need to know where they end up, you know? Uh, so I don't rule out the possibility of, of, of picking it up again, picking up that trail, you know, that white herbs. Yeah. Oh, need to be careful, don't I? Yeah. But yeah, at the end of the book, um, there are things which I can't, obviously we can't talk about. Um, but yeah, there is another, there are other worlds that that I would love to see through their eyes, as it were. Um, and would you ever, do you think, write anything? You know, there, there are so many characters in that that are, that are so interesting. Uh, would you ever perhaps like take one of those characters or another character from the same time and perhaps explore their story? I haven't asked myself that question, but I am. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's a great idea. Um, yeah, there were all sorts of things happening in the aftermath of finishing it. Um, I think when you've entered a world and done a lot of work to make it come real and get your own imagined feet on the ground. It's hard to let that go. I have never done that before with any book, you know, taken the next step to write a sequel or or something connected. But I think, um, yeah, I think I could quite happily live in fifth century, sorry, sixth century Britain for a bit longer. I think that would... Um, uh, I still watch, you know, I still watch archaeology videos and... Yeah, it's still in my deep in my in my curiosity, my my passion. Yeah, I, I watched a. This is a bit random, but I watched a film uh, somewhat recently called The Dig on Netflix. Oh yeah, I've seen it too. Yeah. Oh my gosh, and it's just uh, obviously it's you know based more. Sorry, it's based more uh, now than it is based. Um, Oh, it's basically, is, was it in the 1940s? Is 19, it during the war? Yes, 1930s perhaps. Yes, I'm, yeah, somewhere yes. around that. Yeah. Yes, I think that they're, they're gearing up towards the war or, uh, you know, or the Second World War around then. But, you know, to think that at that time they discover something so incredible, like I can't... I, I can't even imagine what that must be like to actually physically look at something. And that's why I find it amazing going to museums, like you said, and and seeing these things in real life and being, it's almost impossible to actually look at it and think that is exactly what was here so many years ago. And it's been perfectly preserved by the earth. And to imagine, you know, if you find a tool, to imagine them using that tool so long ago is just it's such it must be such an incredible feeling to discover that and so then I imagine there's a similar sort of feeling then writing about someone using that tool or, or using that boat or you know seeing something and then thinking like imagining a whole world around it um but you know given the fact so your uh, first novel Ghost Sport, came out in 2007 do you feel like 
that you know it's that your writing has changed a lot or has, has your writing process changed a lot since then do you think that's such an interesting question yes uh, my first novel ghost walk was i think i think i'm very drawn to sort of gothic tales of um of people getting embroiled in very dark situations and having to find their way out of it, you know, the Gothic novel. Um, uh, So I think that is probably common to everything that I've written in fiction. But I think my plots are much more simple now. Um, Ghost Walk had two different timelines. There were ghosts, there were, um, there were, there were activists, there were, you know, I was managing, I mean, it's incredibly and ridiculously ambitious for a first novel. I still really like it, but I look at it now and I think, what were you thinking? (laughs) Um, You know, if I were working with one of my creative writing students, I'd have just said, simplify it, you know, you can't do all of this. Uh, So I think I do, um, yeah, work with simpler materials now. But what's interesting to me, since I finished Dark Earth, um, two really extraordinary things happened to me. So I've, I've given up my teaching in order to give myself time to, to write full time. And of course, I discovered you can't write full time. You can only write for a certain number of hours per day. Mm-hmm. But um, the first project that came my way after I made that big change in my life, I mean, I've taught, taught literature and creative writing for 32 years. So suddenly wow. in late fifties, I'm, I'm freelance and that's, uh, and I moved from Norwich to Lewis. Um, so a huge amount of change, but quite quickly, um, because a, a film agent took on Dark Earth because she uh, wants to, you know, the, the, it's, it's still, potentially going to be taken up someone might take an option on it and try try and make it who knows um she then came to me sometime later and asked me if I would be involved as a historical consultant on a television series called Boudicca wow you know about Boudicca right you know she was yes. first century she marched she was a, a ancient she, uh, a British queen uh, from Norfolk, which is where I used to live. I know so much about Boudicca. Of course, I said yes. I've been fascinated by Boudicca since I was a teenager. You know, she took on the Romans. She burned down Londinium. Um, she was fearless and furious. And uh, we know only a certain amount about her. Anyway, they came to me and said, would I be a historical consultant? And I said, I would. And then within a little while, I was um, asked if I would co-create. And that basically means they say to you, OK, here is the first series. There are eight episodes. Each of those episodes is an hour long. Create the characters, create the world, create the baddies and the goodies. Tell, you know, make a story, storyboard it for eight wow. episodes. And I was working with an amazing writer, very experienced. I've never written for television before. So she was showing me how we do it, you know, which is not that different from creating a novel, but, you know, you need different, there there are different dynamics and you have to have different pieces and it's a lot more intricate in lots of ways. So I worked on that, which took me back to first century Britain, back to Rome, because I was interested in what was happening. We've created a storyline which goes backwards and forwards between ancient Britain 
Boudicca and her family and what's going on in Rome at the same time, which is Nero, struggles with his mother. Anyway, it's um, it, it was such fun to do. And, you know, it's, it's out there uh, doing, it's out there in the world. But um, it was such fun to do. And then soon after that, someone came and asked me if I would write or co-write the film script for a feature of my memoir, which is about, just called In the Days of Rain, which is about growing up in a cult, being a child in a cult, um, which is my story. This is how I, how I experienced the world until I was eight. Um, and so I've been writing that. So long-winded way of saying for the last year and a half, I have been writing for television and I've been writing for film. Don't know what's going to happen with each of those projects, but I've been working with women who are so good at what they do, not just co-writers, but also developers and film developers, film agents, all women. Um, and I have learned a new craft. It's still storytelling. Amazing. But I have, uh, you know, I have learned about, uh, you know, how to write a really good short scene, how to, I mean, I haven't sat down and had lessons, but we have created, you know, a storyboard of yes. a film feature um, and we've done all of the arcs and everything. I've never done that before with my novels I start somewhere and I and I'm not always sure where it's going to go whereas with yes. a film you absolutely do need to know where you it's need going. to know <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because you can't be you know throwing stuff out all the time um so I'm really interested to to know what that will be like when I return I've got a novel that I've, I've started, uh, uh, set in the near future rather than in the past, which will be completely... Okay. I mean, but already I can feel that this experience of writing for film, thinking visually, trying not to do so much with words, but to do much more with pictures, I think mm. uh, will be a really interesting uh, just to see what the what the effect of that experience will be on my on my writing, uh, but it's been such fun, and I'm so glad it I was incredible. able to say yes and do it. You know, um, not always easy because when you're learning something new, you think, oh, I'm, maybe I'm just really rubbish at this. <laughs> and you pull off a really good scene, and you think, no, no, no I just need practice. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm trying to channel Isla and Blue in that respect and just keep on going out there and trying new things and yeah seeing seeing you know what happens along the way being adventurous I mean I can't even imagine what it must be like turning you know a book into a tv show or a film but was it even you know harder given the fact that it was like a memoir and and this is this was your life was that harder than to turn into a, a script after having written a memoir about it yeah, I think I couldn't have done it on my own, not just because I don't have the skills of, you know, script writing or didn't when we started. Um, but In the Days of Rain is about my family. So it goes all the way back to the first people who joined this Christian fundamentalist cult. So it goes back 100 years and then comes forward. And the, only the last part of the book is about me as a child trying to make sense of the things that I've been told by the adults around me and and not having any contact with the outside world and, you know, this the, the weirdness of it, uh, of, of that way of growing up as a child. So what we decided to do for the film script is just to do it through the child's eyes. 
Wow. So we've cut away all of the the storytelling of the early part, and now you're just plunged into a world, you know, Brighton in the 60s, where a little girl is in her family and they're talking about the rapture and they're talking, she's going to meetings and there are all these rules and it's normal for her. So so we're trying to show the world through her eyes and there are some fantasy sequences and... Um, yeah, and and ultimately, it's it's what we've tried to do is to make it a story about a child whose imagination saves her from ex- the extreme control and darkness of this particular group. That she can still well, one thing they can't control is her imagination, where she goes mm-hmm. in. Her, you know? uh, we had to call her. So in the book, the child is called, in the memoir, the child is called Rebecca because she's obviously me. But in the film, once we'd called her Ruth, then I could get some distance from her. Right, and, yes. Yeah, she was always me as a child, but, you know, I needed to think of her as a different entity as we as we described it. But I think it's one, I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever written, co-written. And... To give her her due, Amelia, my co-writer, is a magician. She knows she's worked as a director, she's worked as a filmmaker, she's worked as a theatre maker, and she knows how to get magic from people. So she got magic from us. And there were days when I just thought, how did we write that? I mean, it's (laughs) so different from the memoir. It's so, um, I'm so proud of it. I think it's the best thing that I've ever produced that's amazing and I did it with someone else and I've never done I've never worked collaboratively before I mean you work collaboratively with editors when they edit Mm. work but finding the vision with someone else was uh, not something I'd ever done before and starting the process from the beginning with someone because usually editors come in once you've got the manuscript so yeah yeah and so you know we spent three days right at the beginning Amelia and I just watching films you know what did we like and we watched films about girls growing up little girls childhood films films about little girls in dark situations and we watched loads of them and we were which which one makes which one moves you you know so we started with that and then we had a joint vision and we knew what we were making together and it yeah it really has been a joy it's we've only just finished they're just finished and sent off film agent is happy with it so um wow so is that the next step that the film agent goes out with it and tries to find someone to option it yeah yeah oh amazing that's so exciting it's a long long journey there are plenty of very good film scripts that never see the light of day um in fact the majority of them don't so um you know we're managing our expectations Um, yeah but yeah I wouldn't have not worked on that for the world because I think in lots of ways it was the biggest learning experience in terms of storytelling that I've had for a long time yeah and I think with with such an incredible story and with a memoir that literally won a costa I think people would be insane not to go for it (laughs) that that would I think that's it's so incredible and and to see it through a child's eyes as well um and I think that is quite it's quite a popular 
um, thing at the moment as well under the banner of heaven I don't know if you've seen that tv show you know it's it's that kind of thing where it is fascinating to kind of look into this completely almost like completely separate world but it's happening within the world you know which is like so so unusual and like even the fact that it's in Brighton I lived in Brighton for uh, three years for university and I loved it so much I thought it was so amazing and then when I saw that your memoir was all like kind of the cult was based there and and now you're in Lewis which I I loved going to Lewis when I was at university you know it's just all these things where you're like this is so so local to what to what you know and yet there's these entirely different worlds within the world you know it's it's insane so I mean that is something that I would immediately watch if that's any sort of endorsement for the film agent (laughs) I would love to see something like that but actually with Dark Earth it is one of those books that you you cannot help but visualize you can't help but almost as you're reading it watch it and imagine it all in in your head I can see that being a sort of Netflix series or or a film of, of some sort because it's you know you're just thrown into such a vivid visual and you're working on a novel now yes yeah well feeling my way into it uh the big question for me is I've always started with a historical curiosity you know I have a I'm so interested in in the past and in this town that I'm living in now Lewis is full of mystery and um ancient buildings and you know it's perfect for me to be living here but uh I'm interested in writing so this this new novel is set in the near future like in 20 years time um and that's a place that I'm curious about too but whether or not I'm capable of writing without a big historical drive a big historical investigation going on I don't know so I'm I should just press on with it and see see where it is yeah. And is that um like is that kind of is it is it set in the I mean I don't I don't know what I can ask you about it but is how far along is it how are you have you got a manuscript or are you just no, kind of No, I've got about the first 10,000 words and uh <laughs> so what I would do now is to take that to my agent and uh, and she, because I've worked with her again, you know, my experience of working with, with women is just astonishing. I have this group team of women around me, which includes my my daughters, actually, who are both, one of them is in film and the other is in um, is an actor. And Hannah, actually the older one on whom Isla is based, uh, is an actor and she did the audio book of Darker. Oh, wow. uh, it made so much sense. So she does audiobooks. That's what, what she does. But when I was asked, was there someone I wanted to do the audiobook? Hannah was the obvious choice because mm. A, she's very skilled, but also she has Ina's voice. You know, yes. she, her voice also sounds like my voice. And um, yeah, so she was perfect. Oh, how perfect. So yeah. those two, you know, Hannah, Hannah and um, and Kezia, my, my child, my daughters are very much part you know everyone's working on projects you know Kezia is working on on film projects and Hannah's working on uh she she writes for film she also writes um uh, for theater so yeah there's a there's a, a great sense of there being people who will read ideas and say that's going to work or that's not going to work you know mm. or, how about you do this 
Um, and I haven't always had that. And it's a it's it's a real gift to be, you know, of course, as a writer, you have to, Stephen King writes about this, you know, you have to find your project, connect to it, go deep into it, keep the door closed until it's ready to be seen. Um, you can't be going to people and saying, what do you think? Should I do this? You know, if you do that, you just, it, it dilutes it. Mm. But I think when the time is right, then it's wonderful to have people who you really trust who will say, um, yeah, that works. Yeah, keep going. Yes. And, you know, that's one of the things I, I do love asking people is within the publishing industry, is there something in particular that you would change about it? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Such a great question. Um there is so much about the publishing industry that I really love, but mm. what would I change? I think one of the things that this is very much from the point of view of my creative writing teaching self. I've taught creative writing and literature for a very long time, and that means I've worked with some very, very talented writers, uh, young writers who've come through the creative writing course at UEA and then other places where I've taught. And what strikes me is that quite often um, a debut writer, so somebody who's very talented will get uh, signed by a publishing house. Everyone wants the book. There'll be, you know, an auction. There'll be lots of noise and excitement about it. That person is signed with a very large deal. There's a lot of publicity. And then they um, they have to then go and write their second book. And... I think what I mean by this is that I think debut writers who get, who are very, very successful, and we all envy them, all right, because it's that's a dream to be given a huge deal, a huge book deal. I think it's a bit of a poisoned chalice or can be because suddenly, you know, the publishers have to make more money from you and the pressure on the second yes. level. I mean, it's happened to me. My first novel sold very well, and I sold a second book with it. I did a two-book deal. And writing that second novel, uh, you know, I wasn't a young thing. I was in my 40s, but um, there's a huge pressure. And I think, mm. I don't know what the solution to it is, because, of course, yes. people just want to have the new young thing. They want to have the new book. They want to have lots of publicity around it but I, I think people need to be eased into the world of publishing more carefully and more kindly perhaps mm-hmm. um, and be given a bit more time to produce their second novel yeah I think a, a two book deal can be a really difficult thing because obviously it's an it's an amazing thing to be presented with um you know for someone to say we love this book so much that we want whatever you're going to write next like that's such a nice uh, thing to be given and, and to know that your publisher believes in you that much but like you said that then comes with so much pressure and there must be so much anxiety around then writing this second book and one of our authors holly ringland she said that when her first book came out was really, you know, successful and did amazing. But before she'd even published the first one, they were all saying, you know, what are you doing for your second one? When's when's the second one going to be ready and when is it coming out? And all of a sudden she was like, oh, my gosh, like oh, she's been so wrapped up in the first book that she was like the second. I haven't even thought about the second one yet. She's still completely involved. And like you said, you know, with the grieving process, which I'd never thought about it that way of your characters, you know, how, how can you just 
you you can't just cut off whatever you've been writing about and be like, okay, done. Never going to think about that again. I'll just immerse myself in a whole new thing. And, you know, that must be so difficult. So it's, it's true. It, it should be like, it, you know, if there is a two bit deal, which is, you know, not to say that there shouldn't be, but when there is, there should be like kind of no time constraint, no pressure on the author. It should just be when it comes, it comes because, you know, you're, you're never going to get the best out of the author and the author's never going to feel that they're giving their best if they're being, you know, constricted by a time frame or pressure or anything like that. And also, if you sign your book for a lot of money, then the publishers are going to want you to do a lot of publicity. You know, yes. there are no free lunches. <laughs> you have to, quite often these days, we, you know, we are carpetbaggers. We go around... Um, pitching. I mean, I've got my paperback book launch tomorrow at Waterstones in Lewis, and um, I'm so looking forward to that. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of a lot of events, a lot of podcasts. It's fantastic talking about your book. We love it. It's one of the most pleasurable things. But it takes a lot of time. And if a publisher is constantly like, you know, when my hardback came out, I was doing three podcasts a week for several. Wow. Weeks. <laughs> I loved it. I really. Loved it. <laughs> Because people who run podcasts like yourself are really smart and it's so nice to be asked questions um, rather than just to have a give a talk or give a reading. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes a lot of time. So if you're then expected to be writing your next novel whilst you're out there on the road going to, you know, to literary events and to festivals and giving readings, then it's very hard. You're in one world and yet you're trying to get yourself into another world yes it's just pushing you further into the into the book that you're because you're talking about it constantly so then you're just like how can I think about anything else (laughs) so you know I mean goodness you can't we could none of us complain we're all hugely privileged we know we are so lucky to be published and I am so lucky to be published and I don't forget that ever but I would if I could change something I would just change the system a little bit for debut writers so that they don't burn out so that they don't feel bad about themselves because to get published with a big deal that's very that's something to be celebrated and should be fun and not Mm. suddenly you know you lose your life um so yeah and then you know I then like to balance the criticism with also you know what's your favorite thing if you could pick something what's your favorite thing about the publishing industry I think I've already said it in a way, which is that I've got to work now with some incredible women. Um, they're not all women, there are many men too, but uh, there's one particular editor called Helen Garnons Williams, who's now at Big Tree, which is um, Penguin Random House. And anyone looks at my list of books, you'd see that I move from publisher to publisher. You know, I've been published by Bloomsbury, I've been published by Faber, I've been published by Fourth Estate, um, by Orion. Um, and one and the reason, the, the simple reason for this is that I follow Helen um, because she is incredible. Uh, when I won the Costa, she had two books in that shortlist. So wow. she also had John McGregor's Reservoir 13, which she... Uh, oh, my goodness. So she bought my In the Days of Rain and she bought uh, Reservoir 13. She worked on them simultaneously. So of the five shortlisted people in the 2017, <laughs> Helen had two of them. So <laughs> it's so good. I'm not at all surprised she's now running Fig Tree. Um, 
but she says it how it is. She can see mm. how to simplify things. She gives you really detailed notes. She uh, she can pull the best book out of your manuscript. So she's one person. My agent as well. Uh, you know, again, women who just say it as it is. They'll tell you if it's not going anywhere. Um, but yeah, that's what I've loved is working with incredibly talented people and all the way down to amazing publicists as well and mm. book designers all of that yes. um, collaborative part of the end of things you know when you're writing a book you might spend two years on your own with your computer and your manuscript and then it's out and then you've got a team and that team it's glorious and everyone's silly behind you <laughs> yeah well yes we we like to do as much as we can (laughs) and um another one of my favorite questions is if you can and I know it's so hard because I find this a really difficult question too but if you could pick your favorite book from the last year what would it be okay this is not difficult for me at all okay um so many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I, I one of the things I did when I was at UEA was to teach a course called Novel History, which was basically a writing historical fiction course. So the thing with teaching creative writing is that if you've got a very, very talented group of people, you're not teaching them anything, really. They're teaching each other stuff and they're sharing their manuscripts you might be giving them ideas, but you get to see some incredible work emerge. Anyway, long-winded way of saying there was a book that started to emerge in a class that I was teaching about 10 years ago that blew me away. Nothing, I've seen nothing like it. The writer, Ferdia Lennon, um, Irish from Dublin, Libyan father, Irish mother, travelled all over, um, had studied classics, wanted to write a novel set in 412 BC. Okay, so Ferdinand Lennon uh, started to write the first chapter of that book 10 years ago. Everyone in the class that that read it in its first form. This is incredible. Funny, dark. um, He really knew his history. He could create this this world in Syracuse. really fast moving. Anyway, he said, I'm going to go away and write it. And various things. I sort of kept in touch with him. Anyway, he reemerged a couple of years ago and he finished it. And all the agents who had read it in manus- in its first manuscript form uh, in that first chapter had said, you have to write this. This is incredible. And so, anyway, it was a, a big auction. It was bought by Helen Garnons Williams. Ah, um, from fixed seal of approval. Yes, she loved it, and so she got it for fig tree, and it comes out in January, and it's already like selling. And I'm not at all surprised. I mean, I just checked on the Amazon ranking this morning, and it's another six months before it's out, but it's already <laughs> selling. You know. So I think oh this is going to be the big book of next year. I read. It I'm going to go straight onto Amazon and pre-order yeah, it. <laughs> it uh, it's very dark, very big-hearted. It is beautiful and bleak. And no, it's not bleak. It's never bleak. 
but some very dark things happen. Mm. But these two central characters, you just love. Um, so, yeah, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I've been waiting for it for a long time. I think he is so talented. And he has a, he has other books um, that will come out soon after. Because oh, amazing. And what's the, what's the title of this one? Sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't say it. It's called Glorious Exploits. Oh, I love that. Glorious Exploits. And it's Fig Tree, uh, Penguin Random House. And, yeah, it will be a big book next year. Oh, fantastic. And it deserves it. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, fantastic. You see, I love getting new recommendations. The the ones that I've had most recently are for Demon Copperhead. Oh, yeah. Um, Everyone just says that that's just such an incredible read. So I'm, that's also next on my, next on my list of about 100 books. (laughs) Um, And so I guess last but not least, we're talking about The Biscuits. So the Cantuccini by Arden Amici, they are almond Italian biscuits. These are the best. Oh, I think they're up there with some of the best biscuits I've ever been recommended because I don't think I would have ever have reached for them because sometimes with almonds, I'm like, oh, I don't know. because And also I live with someone with a nut allergy, so I'm never really oh, sure whether okay. to pick someone. It's fine. They're not here this week. It's the perfect week to absolutely scoff them all but these are literally so incredible such a fantastic recommendation and we were saying earlier the perfect biscuit to dunk in a coffee or a cup of or tea or wine or wine wine white wine, white wine. yeah this is what the italians do really yeah. interesting because yeah, it's always I'm that that it's like that before dinner when you have like a glass of wine and like olives and they bring out all like this amazing little bits and pieces to eat but actually yes Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to have to try it with a glass of wine. <laughs> you are. And so what would you give these out of 10, do you think? Yeah, I think they would be 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah, yeah. I don't eat huge amounts of biscuits, but yeah, they would be the ones I would want, you know, when you're awake in the middle of the night or, yes. yeah, friends over, they are, yeah, just delicious. Yes, I actually, I think I'm going to have to give them a 10 as well, which I'm not sure I've done yet on the podcast because <laughs> I have I mean, I'm, I, I hate to admit it, but I bought them yesterday and they're almost all gone. So <laughs> if that's not a 10, I, I don't know what is. <laughs> oh, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've so enjoyed talking to you about Dark Earth and just publishing and everything. Thank you for inviting me. This has been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, as soon as I see that Dark Earth is coming out as a film or in the Days of Rain is coming out as a film, I would love to have you back on to talk about it all. Done. Done. And that's all for this week. The biggest thank you to Rebecca for such an incredible conversation. I honestly could have talked to her for another hour or two about all of her incredible projects. And I can confirm that I have pre-ordered Glorious Exploits since we had our chat. Dark Earth is officially out now in hardback and paperback, so if you want to find out more about Isla and Blue, make sure to grab yourself a copy. Thank you all for listening, and as always, if you share our episodes on social media, don't forget to tag us at legend underscore times on Instagram and at legend underscore times underscore on Twitter. As always, we'll be back in two weeks' time with a special host and one of the funniest authors we have ever had in the office. Until then, have a great Monday, everyone.